Boston Society, episode 53. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, I'm wondering if the NBA draft was at all interesting to you. I, I have to say I love the NBA draft. I think it's uh, uh, a really fascinating time of year because I think you get some real insight into how teams operate. Then um, there's just also this thing of some teams consistently draft bad, and I don't understand it. Yeah, I wonder if that is – so I'm not all that interested in any draft, really. Um. I just I, I wonder if I'm only paying attention because it's impossible not to if you go to a sports website that right leading up to a draft it's kind of uh, dominating the headlines especially with NBA and NFL but I wonder if it's um, similar to how I'm feeling about a lot of my normal media outlets post election is hmm. the idea that like maybe maybe five to ten of the guys that are drafted that the ESPN spends so much time talking about leading up to the draft like I'll ever hear from again. Um, and so it's just like, I don't know why I'm watching this, if only like five of these people will matter the knowledge of the sport going forward. Hmm. Uh, maybe that's a little unfair and a little heavy-handed, but still I, I'm just like, I, this is quite a spectacle and I don't know what I'm watching really yeah and i should say that like i don't i don't watch it live but i do enjoy reading follow-up pieces and reading stuff in advance because i do think as a college basketball fan and an nba fan i'm always intrigued by how the two play together um and i'm also always intrigued by seeing how teams operate so like you know the big news out of this nba draft was the jimmy butler trade um right and uh, there are all kinds of people just shellacking the Bulls for doing what they did and getting as little as they got out of it. But it's interesting to me because I think that on some level, I love watching the sports, but the more you get into the sport, the more you understand how complex these front office scenarios are. And I think that, that uh, it's kind of like one of these situations where the longer you spend with something, the more likely you are to find it interesting. And so I think that I have – like listen to enough NBA talk this year that I'm intrigued by just about anything that happens so that those things in the front office, like how to make salary cap issues work and how to like make your team happy and plan for the future. Those questions are really fascinating to me on some level. The Bulls are an interesting case too in this situation as a case study of what do you do when you're kind it appears that you are attempting to be relevant but at this point in the nba to be relevant you have to have just substantial team chemistry or at least you have to really be paying attention to team chemistry and then on top of that and even more of a a hurdle to get over is you have like three or four really good players right now and so what do you do if the if you're the Bulls and like you're pretty good and you want to keep your fan base happy, but it's also maybe kind of impossible um, in the near future to create an environment to be relevant in the NBA. Um, so I, I, I can get intrigued with that. And so I too found like the stuff the Bulls were up to interesting for those reasons. Right. It's, you know, I think it's a fascinating time. Well, I think any time when you pay enough attention to something is a fascinating time, right? I mean, if we uh, paid a bunch of attention to Beanie Babies, we would probably find it fascinating. <laughs> That's such a great point. I love that. Um, but like, you know, for me, like there's this whole question now of in the East, you're positioning yourself for what happens if LeBron goes to the Lakers next year. And, what happens in three years anyway when LeBron is past his prime. So like every, like even the Celtics, I think are like, I don't want to spend those assets too soon when I don't know like what my competition looks like. I don't know if this is our time. And so I think like, that's why they didn't pull the trigger this year. Um, but I also look at like the Suns and the Kings in the West. Um, 
who both have these really young, interesting cores at this point. And I start to wonder, like, you know, they know that they're not going to beat the Warriors in the next three years. So they're really trying to position themselves that when the Warriors drop off in three years, they're the ones that are ready to pick it up, which I think is just a like, – and in the meantime, they want their fan base to have some fun. But right now, it's just about, like, we know we're not going to win. So let's – how can we make this interesting for the future? Right. Yeah, that's an interesting take, too, on what we discussed last week on – I don't know if we really talked about it, of, like, what you do if you are a franchise that is existing in the same market as the team that's the dominant, especially at these moments like an NBA draft where you have to make decisions and, like, reality comes to a head. It's like, all right, we got to do something. Um, we know we're not going to beat the Warriors, but – We've got to create a narrative for ourselves. We have to market ourselves. We have you start answering different questions uh, as opposed to just the championship question. Um, so that's kind of interesting to think about. Also, I do want to give a shout out to um, the Warriors who have yet again shown themselves in the front office to just be really good at what they do uh, in terms of they didn't have a draft pick. And so they wind up buying one in cash and getting exactly the player that they wanted, who I feel fairly confident will probably get playing time in the finals this coming year. Um, and it's just because they were willing to be creative and splash some cash. Who did they get? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember their name. Um, oh, that's all right. I, I just... It just speaks to me like everyone's talked about how the Cavs have no flexibility. And it's uh, the Warriors don't have any flexibility either, but they're making it work and they've recognized the draft is important when the Cavs don't seem to care about the draft. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. It was so fascinating to me that to see how much of the media coverage after the finals was over was on how LeBron should be wishing that he still had Wiggins and not uh, luck, love, which is just a, I don't know how to feel about that, that that's such an interesting thing. Right. Well, staying with basketball, what's Patino up to? Man, the guy, the guy just needs to go. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's all this, he apparently wrote a long letter to all of the donors and stuff at Louisville. Um, yeah. which he made some inappropriate references to things he never should have referenced, including uh, 9-11, I believe, being one of the references he made. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, it comes down to this, like he's claiming this ignorance perspective, which for me uh, doesn't make him look any better. I don't quite get why um, why that's a, the, the place he wants to stand in this conversation. Right. I, I just told someone last night, I think all that is made evident here to me is that Patino is more out of touch than I even thought he was, <laughs> which is saying a lot. He apparently is living in a bubble and you have to wonder, I mean, um, so I'm asking the same questions with Patino at this point that I'm asking with Phil Jackson, like, these are guys that had it at some point that just don't seem to have it anymore. Yeah, I think, I mean, he can still put a defense together and he can still put a press together and he can still figure out how to get points. But uh, as far as running the culture of an NCAA program, I, I mean, he's failing miserably. Yeah, there's no other way to put it. Do you think that like this is a indication that these cultures are changing or is it just people that have grown out of touch because they haven't like had a touch point in years? My first response is that I would argue that in this case with Patino, it's both um, that he is, I, I, you know, he's, he's been elite for a long time, which probably means you work and live in, a, in an elite fashion. Um, and he's done that for a long time now. And I think it also might just be the, the world's changing out um, or changing beneath him. Uh, and he can't keep up. Well, I, it's speaking of a changing basketball world, I was really intrigued to see both that um, 
the Olympics are going to have a three-on-three competition and uh, that uh, a bunch of people in the U.S., including Ice Cube, are throwing money into a professional three-on-three league here. Um, right. It's a, a fascinating thing, if only because as a basketball fan, there is this small part of me that loves the idea of three-on-three half-court basketball. Mm. See, it doesn't give me at all. Um, really? No, but maybe I'm realizing, and, uh, you know, we've talked about new sports or fringe sports a decent amount in our course of this podcast, and maybe I'm realizing that I'm somewhat of, like, this, like, conservative reactionary when it comes to (laughs) sports world, man. I don't know if I have a good reason for that, uh, other than I'm I'm wondering if I've just, as of... um, somewhat in tune or devout sports fan that I've I've seen, I feel like I've seen this happen a decent amount with maybe not much success. Um, I'm already thinking of how I could prove myself wrong with something like snowboarding. Um, As in, you know, that, that was a niche fringe thing, but now it's pretty massive and it's one of the main draws of the winter Olympics. Um, So pay no attention to my conservatism (laughs) because As most conservative conservatives, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> well, I am like like Ice Cube's thing. I I find fascinating just as a cultural touch point, but for me, it rings the bell of the the esteemed XFL and the the disaster that that was. Um, mm-hmm. Just the way they're marketing it is totally the wrong way. But I do like. Um, there's like a semi-interesting, uh, I would, let me rephrase that, a mostly interesting um, Vice Sports documentary on YouTube about how the best three-on-three basketball team in the world is Croatian. Um, yeah, and I, I've seen it's, that. It's, uh, and so that for me is what kind of excites me about this on the Olympic level is that this opens the door to countries that we would never think of being basketball countries being basketball places and that's that for me is exciting in the same way i you know i kind of tie this back to we talked about how to make baseball more interesting at some point and we've talked about how cricket has revolution itself revolutionized itself by going to t20 stuff um and i'm i have to say i'm hopeful that this three-on-three expands the viability of basketball uh across the planet mm-hmm. I love the idea of that Croatian team winning a gold medal. I that know, right? Cool. Yeah, that would be really cool. Um, I'm also intrigued to see how the U.S. handles it on some level. Like, I think LeBron was really interesting in saying that, uh, you know, this is obviously take this with a grain of salt because he's incredible no matter what he was doing. He could be playing in the NFL right now. But um, he talked about how he's not particularly good at three-on-three basketball. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, what's how are the how is the U.S. going to compose a team when we're so used to playing five on five, and all of our best players play five on five? Right. Well, apparently, Allen Iverson is considering a three on three comeback. Well, he he's in this Ice Cube League. Is he? Yeah, along with uh, Stephen Jackson, Dr. J is coaching a team. Um, there's some like legitimate former star power that's involved in this. I think maybe the other part of this too is that you have to look at Ice Cube as a really successful business entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. That guy's had massive success. So you can't fault him yet. Um, and if you look at his track record, you probably have to say like, oh, this could work. He's had a lot of other things that work. I also have to say that I'm uh, in, really intrigued to see how the broadcasting works out, if only because mm-hmm. I have a soft spot for Michael Rappaport, and mm-hmm. uh, especially after having listened to him on the Bill Simmons podcast, I'm, I just have to say I'm excited to see him as the sideline guy for this already ridiculous project in some ways. <laughs> Well, speaking of Michael Rappaport and Bill Simmons, that makes me think of Malcolm Gladwell. What's going on with him? So Gladwell's got his new season of revisionist history out on a podcast mm-hmm. that uh, I, so let me again preface this. I think I've said this before on this podcast, not a huge Gladwell fan. 
uh, and I listened to this one that was highly recommended to me about golf courses, uh, still at the end of it, not a Gladwell fan, but it's a really fascinating piece in many ways. Uh, and before you ask, I have no idea why I don't like Malcolm Gladwell. I just don't like the guy. Uh, <laughs> I think, let me, I was telling Sarah that I think maybe it's because people take him too seriously. It may not even have anything to do with him, who he yeah. is. Um, yeah. Uh, but it was essentially about how backward the California situation is with golf courses. That it's like the, so the LA Country Club, for a number of reasons, um, paid twenty thousand dollars in property tax last year. Well, legitimately, they should have been paying somewhere in the ballpark of uh, ninety million or something along those lines. Right. Um, and it's just uh, how essentially we've subsidized these massive places. And you, you've lived in LA, all right. So you know that there essentially are no public parks in LA. Right. They're just these massive walled-off golf courses. And it essentially, right. it's a fairly scathing indictment of that whole culture. Yeah, I, it, the idea of an LA golf course is one of the more absurd, like mental exercises you could put yourself through <laughs> um not to mention the water mm. uh that's what always amazes me is when i when you're in la and you drive around in the desert all day and even during water shortages that happened twice while i was there in two years and i think they're just coming out of one right now and <laughs> there's still this like 50 acre 100 acre green space right in the middle of the desert during a water shortage and it's like huh, what's why are humans doing that what's going on there um the other amazing thing about golf in la is that they play six sums um, hmm. so it takes like six and a half hours to play around the golf in la that sounds miserable <laughs> it's really awful it's really awful but he um he also dug some research or uh, builds off some research somebody else does that shows that um, like, so have you ever done a handicap where you put your stuff into the USGA after you play? Yeah. Um, so I wasn't aware how this actually worked, but apparently um, there are a bunch of CEOs or major corporations that you can find their scores on the USGA database. And yeah. um, there's at least one, that has played 187 times in the past year and has the goal to put those, all of those times on there. Um, but wow. apparently there's a direct inverse correlation between how many times you play golf as the CEO a year and how your company performs. <laughs> that is an amazing Malcolm Gladwell correlation that I love. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that makes me want to look past my own distaste for his image as a cultural icon and just accept that one. But yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, no, the USGA handicap thing is uh, a hilarious study in the male ego driven world of golf course culture. Um, because at the private clubs, they post everyone's handicap. Uh, either in the locker room or in the pro shop or Do something they really? like that. That's fascinating. Yeah, so everyone can see who the who the top golfer at the course is, who's who's improved or who's gotten worse, and all this stupid crap. Um, but yeah, it's public knowledge if you put your scores in there. That's such a fascinating world in some ways. That that's because it's such a privileged world to begin with and that these uh, you know, you're finding these places and, and reasons to kind of exert even more control and even more privilege uh, upon yourself in this place. Right. It's, uh, it's, I just want to give a quick shout out to so the head pro at the course I worked at when I was playing a lot of golf and playing a lot of tournament. Um, it cost money to have a handicap. Um, and he paid my dues so that I could have a handicap to play in those tournaments. Hmm. It's a really kind thing he did realizing right now. But you can probably look mine up. I haven't looked at it in years, but it's probably there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's it. Everybody go on, go on the USA. So <laughs> we know you have nothing better to do with your time if you're listening to this podcast already. So. Yeah. Uh, well, what have you been uh, keeping up with this week? So two things that I find to be related. Uh, Richard Lapchick uh, wrote a really nice piece on the most recent Title IX report. And he's been at the center of these Title IX reports now for like 30 years. Uh, he's a professor at University of Central Florida, which they have billed themselves as like the Title IX university, as in they they meet the standards better than any university in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of it's due to Lapchik. Um, there's, I've read a few articles that talk about how much work he's put into it and how much campaigning he's done. It's really just been his life work at Central Florida. So as a result, it's where... Um, uh, the NCAA sends all of their money for the research, and so he carries out the research as well. Hmm. Uh, but this year was the first time they uh, included LGBT statistic, the Title IX report. Uh, and so as you can imagine, <laughs> the scores dropped <laughs> more than they ever had. Um, and there were only two or three universities that received the passing grade hmm. uh, in all of the NCAA. Uh, which is pretty harrowing. Um, there are he does highlight some things of uh, like universities that have made big jumps, uh, and how encouraging that is to say that like, look, this is possible. You just have to make it a priority. Um, so there there are some positive elements to it, but um, relatedly, I read them back to back. Was um, Sarah Spain wrote um, an article on the Mayweather McGregor fight. Uh, and it was pretty scathing, essentially saying that if you're watching this fight, you're watching someone that's been accused of uh, domestic spousal abuse on multiple occasions and has never had to answer up for it. Hmm. Um, so much so that her, I want to read her the last uh, paragraph. Um, she says, buy the fight and you'll not only be wasting your money on a flawed product, but you'll also forever know that you put money in the pocket of a man who has beaten and threatened to kill women. When you're watching him pummel the inexperienced McGregor, do your best not to picture a woman in the ring with him instead. A mother to his children, perhaps, being punched repeatedly in the back of the head. If you can actually make your see Mayweather using his years of training to terrorize women and you can still enjoy the fight, then you'll have to acknowledge that sports mean more to you than your humanity. Um, pretty harsh. Um, can't say I, I, well, I can't, I can say I completely agree with her. And even more so, I, you know, I beckoned last week for voices saying something like this along the lines of MMA. And it's like, Oh, here's a voice like wonderful. This is great. Um, and so as opposed to the negativity I ended with last week, it's nice to say like, oh yeah, here's someone saying exactly what I was looking for someone to say. Um, not that she's doing it for me, but it's just nice to hear a voice. I was, um, I was struck by the fact that after we did last week, I don't know what day of the week it was, but their ESPN's top story for a fairly significant amount of time was about the person they were labeling the next great hope or next great talent in the MMA world. Um, mm-hmm. It just struck me as how much ESPN's got invested in this already. And if you notice, that came a day after the sub headline about an MMA fighter that died. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, yeah. Um, Pretty, but I was just so happy to see that article. I was like, thank you for someone saying this out loud on a major platform. Well, it's so hard though, because I mean, like, that's like we've talked before on here about our admiration for Sarah Spain and the some of the incredible stuff she's done. But I do wonder, um, how do we, how do you get that where it needs to be? I guess, how do you? And this is again where we wound up last week. So I don't have any answers, but I just want like no. How many people do you think will read that article? This yeah, week? yeah. It was somewhat buried on ESPNW. And it's uh, ESPNW is an interesting phenomenon in itself, isn't it? 
Yeah, it really is. Uh, both in the kind of way that I want to give ESPN credit for it, but also the way they seem to uh, marginalize some articles by putting in there raises some really interesting questions as well. Yeah. For sure. Like for me, that should not necessarily be in the SBNW article. I agree. <laughs> yeah, they've written about that actually a little bit. Um, and you hear little chirps of stuff at certain times if you listen to any of their podcasts and stuff, um, where it's like, oh, you all are definitely having this conversation. Um, but the powers that be above them, I would imagine, are saying like, you know, it's not up for a conversation right now. Uh, money, man. Money everywhere. Yeah. Anything else going on? Well, I did want to just um, – I know you're a baseball fan, and I was shocked when I looked at the standings this week and saw that the NL West uh, is just blowing it up with the Rockies, the Dodgers, and the Diamondbacks all playing really well. And it just raised again this issue for me of – um, time to watch games, but also just how those of us on the East Coast, the West Coast could be a different planet in many ways. Especially baseball. It is really hard to watch a West Coast baseball game. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I, I haven't looked at an NL West standings chart this season, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I scroll past it, but it does. It just seems like a different universe that I don't pay attention to until the playoffs. It's also interesting to me to see these two teams. These were both teams formed in the 90s, is that right? Mm -hmm. um, the Rockies and the Diamondbacks. And to see them and like what, uh, how the success of the Dodgers somehow is more relevant in some ways than the success of the Rockies and the Diamondbacks. And just how much of that is because of heritage and how much of that is because of fan base. Like I have no idea how many players or fans go to watch an average Rockies or Diamondbacks game. Yeah, the Diamondbacks really struggled with that. They almost went under um, maybe seven or eight years ago uh, because they had like five really terrible seasons in a row and they were having like 5,000 people at some games. Mm -hmm. um, well, especially given that um, apparently Arizona is going through one of the worst heat waves in the history of the world. Twenty-four degrees. Out there. I can't imagine watching, much less playing a game in that kind of weather. Right. Um, did you see the Yasiel Puig bat flip thing? No. Yeah. So, same thing. And I, you know, ever since uh, Buster only several years ago introduced me to old Dan Levitard as well, um, that really this is just racism. This isn't someone playing by a code or not. Um, this one seemed especially blatant. I mean, it, it was like really understated, I felt like, for Yasiel Puig. Um, but I think he obviously is the victim of his past crimes. But either way, it, he just kind of stared at it a little bit for maybe just a little bit too long, according to the code. Um, but the Mets did not take kindly to it. It's so funny how thin that line is in so many ways that it's to, like it can be like the, the difference of of literally a second or less. Um, yeah. That all of a sudden this person has done the worst possible thing in your mind. Right. Do you remember Dante Bichette? No. Um, he, he was a, 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 a less famous home run hitter. He probably hit 35 a year, and he considered himself a guy that hit 60 a year. <laughs> um, but he he had a bat flip that he did every time, and I think everyone just accepted it because he did it every time. He like created a niche for himself. But look up some Dante Bichette YouTube vids. They're pretty hilarious. I mean, it's not like it's not like these are the first players to play with flair. I mean, Sammy Sosa played with all kinds of flair in some ways. Yeah, that's really true. But Barry Bonds used to stare down those home runs as well, pose right. after he made him. It's just, yeah. it's an excuse to be mad. It's kind of like, you know, um, how I don't like LeBron and I'm always looking for an excuse not to like him. Uh, <laughs> the same thing with these players. Yeah.
it's got to be exhausting to be a baseball player. Like you're playing all those games, but there's also like, I got to imagine that it's perhaps harder to maintain steady relationships in the baseball world than just about any of the other major sports worlds. Yeah. I just heard the um, TCU coach um, talk about how hard it is to play in the college world series. Cause you play like another 20, 25 games on top of the regular season and how hard it is like for him to keep his team focused and stuff. And um, I just looked, they, they played like 60 games, something like that this season. And so you tack on another hundred and then you've got an MLB season. When I feel like this is projecting mind you, but um, I feel like baseball players are in some way the most annoying of all the major sports leagues. I don't know what it is, but um, I don't think that's projecting. <laughs> it's just like, reality. The number of like, puka shell necklaces in the major league baseball world makes me think <laughs> that they're just not a fun group of people to be around <laughs> that's quite the signifier and i'm not going to disagree with it <laughs> well, what's going on in cycle? Yeah, so uh, build up the Tour de France starts next weekend. Quite exciting. Um, so that means national championships are mostly happening today, which is uh, really exciting. The U.S. are in Knoxville today, so they'll do a circuit race for a while. Um, but that's always a weird thing because they almost won't always wind up with someone you didn't expect to be the national champion is the national champion. Mm-hmm. But also this is perhaps an exciting time for many of the teams because – they're making their selections for who's going to be in the Tour de France team. Mm-hmm. And for most most racers, just participating in a Tour de France is the highlight of your career. Uh, and so it's really fascinating to see who who gets picked to be on these in these races and who doesn't and how that how that goes over and just the disappointment of a number of racers for not getting picked. Um, it's a it's a fascinating thing. I mean, so each of these teams has, you know, twenty to thirty riders on it, um, and so only nine of them can participate in the Tour de France. And next year, that'll only be eight. Um, mm-hmm. so it's a big it's a big deal. Hmm. Who is uh, the top American rider right now? I don't even know. Oh gosh, I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. There's no. Or do we have, is there an American that's going to be um, a top rider for a Tour de France team? Um, I don't know that. So the, probably the closest to that would be um, either Andrew Talansky or Joe Dombrowski for Cannondale. Um, mm-hmm. They both have the potential to win a stage, but neither of them has the potential to really challenge in the overall. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. We've there are a couple. Um, there's actually an exciting time in the uh, Criterium to, excuse me, Tour de Suisse that just happened, where uh, an American that's racing for a second tier team in Europe won a stage, um, and it was it was quite a thing. This is a guy that's kind of been through the ringer uh, and keeps on doing it, even though like the odds are this is his first. Uh, real win of significance. Um, he's been doing this for, you know, eight years. Uh, and so it's fascinating to see that kind of stuff rewarded, uh, especially there's a part of me that, that loves the fact that it was an American that was, that's all that happened. Yeah. But what about cricket? Cool. What are you all up to this week? Uh, Henry Blofeld announced his retirement from the BBC. Have you ever heard him or come across him? Uh, I've probably heard him, but I don't know that I know the name. Yeah, so he's been the voice of cricket in England for 45 years. Um, so it's like Harry Carey, if Harry Carey was the voice of America. Uh, <laughs> he's this um, very staid, understated, but yet like a British version of kind of gregarious and histrionic. Um <laughs> So for them, he's like over the top. For us, he's like barely audible. 
Um, but, <clears throat> I mean, he's been calling test matches for 45 years, so you think of how much airtime that is. Um, yeah, and, and so naturally, over 45 years with that much airtime, he's become known for a lot of tropes that are used to kind of troll him. Uh, all in good fun, everyone loves him. Like, he has no haters. Uh, well, I'm sure he does, but um, for the most part, um, the British press loves him. But he's known for uh, talking about pigeons a lot. Um, <laughs> and whenever he's at Lords, and you can see the road from Lords, he always comments on when, like, a bus drives by. Apparently, that's always interesting to him. Like, oh, there's the 45 bus. Um, <laughs> So uh, he's significant to me personally just because he is the voice I associate with, like, my interest in the game. Uh, and so there's no way I could appreciate him as much as, like, hardcore British cricket fans do, or British fans all, or fans all around the world because the BBC broadcast goes all over the world. Uh, and so billions of people have listened to him commentate games for 45 years now. So it's a pretty significant voice um, being lost in cricket. Um, but I, it makes me wish that Saturday Night Live had an audience that could get a cricket <laughs> reference because they could do some really good stuff with him. Um, it's, it's so interesting. I'm, as you're talking about this, that my mind is going to um, snooker. So I don't know yeah. if when you were there, when, when we were in, uh, when I studied abroad in London, the snooker world championships were happening. Uh, and I just remember that being like two straight weeks of television on the BBC. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, <clears throat> on some ways, it's fascinating the way that British sports are able to do this where they just talk about the same thing for a really extended period of time. Yeah. I mean, like, um, like in, we were there um, during the Winter Olympics as well. And I remember that the only thing that the uh, British were really – had a good chance of winning a medal in was uh, curling. And so there were yeah. just hours and hours of curling coverage on the BBC. Yeah. It's yeah. like, man, this is boring. But at the same time, like they, they've got this way of just that understatedness that makes it fascinating in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel about the European golf tour. Is it's like one of the only sporting events I watched uh, with the volume on, hmm. just because the announcers are so amazing. Uh, they're so good at it, and it's just so pleasant to listen to. Well, there is something like you know, I will watch Sports Center, you know, three mornings a week or something like that. But almost every single time I watch it, I wish it was like Match of the Day, where you had the actual commentators who are, that's what they do for a living. That's all they've ever done or wanted to do. Um, mm -hmm. And then you'd hear like, because there's just something so much better in my mind about hearing that authentic commentary as it's happening mm -hmm. than hearing somebody in the studio talking about what happened in the match. Not to mention it's overlaid with like really annoying electric guitars just like blasting. Yes. I'm like, I can't listen to sports anymore because I just can't listen to their music. It's so <laughs> awful. Like, who are they survey testing that on? Because they definitely didn't ask me. Oh, my. Well, uh, before we leave cricket, I want to just share that I spent a good, uh, good hour or so this week watching uh, both Andrew Flintoff getting hat tricks and Dwight Gale and A.B. de Villiers uh, just completely smashing the ball, mm -hmm. which uh, is fascinating to me watching, especially the Flintoff, because there was um, one of his hat tricks. There was a ball that I definitely think uh, was out. The guy would have been out on, but there was no review at that point. And so the it was all up to the ump, and the ump just shook his head uh, yeah. and then went back to playing, which is just so fascinating how that was, that was probably 15 years ago, and yet everything has right. changed at this point. Yep. That umpire shake of the head is one of my favorite parts of cricket. <laughs> <laughs> they just stand there, statue-like, and they, they, they milk it. I, I, I don't know why they do that, but they, they wait like five or ten seconds, and then they just give this like almost unnoticeable head nod. I love it. 
Well, it's so funny too, because I mean, that's, you know, you think about um, how that's different, like that and cricket are kind of similar, or um, tennis or some kind of similar, where like yeah. you've got this really yeah. understated and yet vastly important adjudicator of decisions. Um, and yet I feel like all of our U.S. umpires and refs are these have become these really demonstrative people in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to say that the, the soccer, I think, is different in terms of, um, you know, there's certainly some soccer umpires that I could tell you were uh, love the attention of making a big call. Oh, yeah. You can tell, too, when they're doing it, that they're loving it. <laughs> I mean, Howard Webb just ate it up. He wanted, he wanted all that attention. Yeah. yeah. I think some of the NBA refs can be called guilty of that, too. Oh, absolutely. What's his name? Crawford um, was just – it was you could watch – like you can watch highlight videos of the refs. That's, that's not a good sign, I don't think. Yeah. All right. We well, want to get on to the main topic? Let's do it. So this week, we're talking about what happens when athletes retire. So, I mean, I think, I can't remember what really brought this to mind for me, but um, I think maybe it was even Chauncey Billups being considered for the uh, the GM position at the Cavs, which is just a mind-boggling thing to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when you think of a, an athlete retiring, what's the first thing that goes through your head, Kyle? I have maybe three main thoughts. My first thought is how how common it is for professional athletes, especially the ones – well, no, I can't say that. Let me just start over. Professional athletes that have to deal with the depression that is almost inevitable after a career playing sports. Um, I also think about what their options are in – um, how interesting that is to think about of like, if you're a famous athlete, you can't really just enter into society. That's not really an option. Um, and the third thing I, I think I think about is all those players that you don't know of uh, and how common retirement is in sports. Um, but we only seem to hear about um, when the big stars retire, but for those players that played a sport for 40 years, um, they're going through the exact same thing that those big stars are going through. Maybe one and three are kind of related, but. That raises some really interesting questions. And I think I hadn't even considered this when I was writing up an outline, but I wonder, I wonder what it's like. So I think of um, Derek Willis, right? Um, mm-hmm. Had a reasonable career at UK. Um mm-hmm had this amazing incident where he fell asleep on the road next to his car as well, while wildly intoxicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I will not let you forget that, uh, Mr. Willis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, he didn't get drafted. Uh, he's probably going to spend some time on one of these summer league teams. He'll, he'll probably spend some time in the D league. Um, my guess would be he'll probably spend some time playing abroad as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he's going to like, how does he give that up that that's been his life for those years? And, you know, he's got a ch- even a chance to play somewhere else, even more so I think of the guys that, um, you know, don't have that as an option. Right. Yeah. And that's, so I looked up the um, average NFL career is 3.3 years. Mm-hmm. The average MLB is 5.6, and the average NBA is 4.8. Well, and just to add another layer on top of that, of course, those are just the people that make it in the major leagues. But right. um, we're talking about for an NBA player over that time, average career earnings of $24.5 million, Major League Baseball average of 17.9, and NFL average of $6.7 million. Right. Um, which is all really interesting. And I think especially, you know, I think about major league baseball and those guys that spend all those years in the minors, like mm-hmm. just the amount of mental toll that that takes on you. I can't even begin to fathom that. 
At least if you're not making it in the NFL, you don't really have a fallback strategy. Yep. Like, and I kind of wish, you know, on some level that the farm system was not as uh, – well, that's an interesting question. Like, does this make me wish that the farm system in Major League Baseball weren't as big? Hmm. Like, could they cut it back to double-A and triple-A only and be just as successful? Right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, MLB would never entertain that, I don't think. Um, it makes me think of our, our argument of how cool it would be if there was relegation in Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even, like, how much more willing guys would be to, to stick with it um, for maybe a few more years than they would otherwise if that was the case. They were actually playing for a city or playing for a team that had an identity beyond just trying to make it to the pros. Um, I, yeah. I have to say that there's kind of um, there's this part of me that wonders what it is that makes some athletes better prepared for the future than others. So, I mean, I think about um, you know uh, my boy Brogdon, who's one of my favorites. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. has now got a master's degree and has already got plans for starting an international NGO to focus on poverty issues in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, he's he's already got a plan worked out. Right. Um, but he also had the privilege of getting injured and not being the most athletic guy in the world and so having to go through years of school. Right. And having a family that supported him through that. Right. What, um, like, how do you, how do we expect somebody like, um, you know, Ben Simmons uh, to have a a solid foundation on which to build for the future? Right. Yeah, in my UK circle, we always talk about this, um, of these guys that try to go pro from UK and end up playing like three years in, um, you know, in Lithuania or something and then moved to Turkey and then Honduras and then El Salvador and then maybe Spain. And that's like the pinnacle of their career or something like that. And so especially for those UK guys, they go from private jets, beautiful facilities, uh, all meals prepared for you, everything just pristine uh, to, you know, riding buses in Eastern Europe. Like how harsh of a reality that would be um and yeah a lot of those guys not coming from a privileged upbringing that would offer them the tools to negotiate a world outside of basketball that'd be really hard yeah and it's you know i think it's you know we see players like jordan and magic you know even like Shaq has made some incredible business deals after his time out um and so I think that that it raises these questions of what, like, what comes next? Like, mm-hmm. how do you, how do we, like, what is what what is a reasonable expectation of how much financial education we should be giving to these athletes, um, mm-hmm. and how much we should be, you know, it's it seems unreasonable in my mind that we require all professional athletes to go through counseling, and yet. Right probably what they all need to do. Shaq and uh, Kobe and Jordan and Magic and those guys are an interesting part of the conversation too because their money is such a cushion uh, mm-hmm. for life after sports. And yeah, there are the the horrific stories of like the Antoine Walkers that, you know, made $150 million in their career and now uh, have the government control it. But um, Shaq gave uh, that interview that people paid a lot of attention to there when he gave it. I, mean, I think it was, is it like the big question or the big ask? Or I think it's a Fox outlet. Um, but he talked about how much money he's lost in his life. Hmm. Uh, and he says on like some business deals, he's lost like over $10 million. Hmm. And... <laughs> How like that he can say that so casually because he's made two hundred and fifty million on his other deals, and so like a ten million dollar loss to Shaq is not that big a deal. But there aren't many former athletes out there that can do something like that. And it's 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 in some ways it's for me indicative of how toxic the atmosphere is. In some ways that 
the people that we view as kind of the forward thinkers are the ones that prepare career in coaching. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I think of like my boy, Tony Bennett at UVA, like he was mm -hmm. preparing for that role of being a coach, even when he was playing in the NBA, that he knew that that was probably what he wanted to do in the future. And for mm -hmm. there's this part of us, it's like, yeah, that guy has got a, a plan. Uh, and yet we have to have people that have plans outside of sports for when their sports career is over. Right. You know, right. Uh, I can't fathom what it's like to go from playing in the NBA to being uh, a project lead for a corporation or a program director for a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. It makes me think too of um, this isn't developed um, thought, but it, it's interesting maybe how how retirement exists as a concept in sports versus how it uh, exists in society at large. In that, you know, it's something to be feared in sports, whereas in the outside world, it's kind of celebrated as this thing like like ah, oh, finally you made it to retirement. How is it? Um, which I think is wrongly applied. <laughs> I think there are many retirees out there that would tell you that retirement can actually be kind of miserable. <laughs> um, as in like, I kind of fear retirement myself already, but um, at any rate, um, it's interesting that it's kind of like contrasted with that. And then you could contrast it even further with how much we kind of freak out when someone retires early from the sport. Mm-hmm and how big of a story that is. I, I would argue maybe Barry Sanders is the most predominant example of that, mm -hmm. even though it's kind of dated now. But I remember that being such a big deal, how people were just like, what are you doing? Um, and now with all the information that's come out on CTE and what football does to a human's body, it's kind of like Barry Sanders maybe was on the front lines of that. Saying, oh, stupid. I'm not doing this to my body forever. Well, it's interesting too, because not only has he did he step aside when he did, but he's kind of um, stayed out of the spotlight. I mean, yeah, yeah, we don't hear from him. Yeah, he hasn't been desirous of like. It's not like he needs to maintain this public identity that he had before, right? And I really wonder what he's doing with his time these days. Yeah, I've wondered that many times. Hmm. I always ask my my business world friends about how much money Brett Favre could possibly be making on his copper bracelets and like knee bandages and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, why is he doing that? I bet it's a bunch of money. <laughs> Do you think? I don't know. I always wonder like how much money could a copper band company be paying him? I mean, I bet it's, I bet it's at least 500 grand a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he figures I got to work like one day for like three hours and I can make 500 grand. Yeah. And they're probably asking him for a little more than that, but I imagine it's something along those lines. Yeah. Hmm. There's this also other part of me too that wonders, you know, these guys, um, you know, take a UK basketball guy for an example. You know, he grew up, uh, and he started probably playing competitive basketball at, at 10 or 12, right? right. Um, and then in high school, essentially every decision that was made was focused around his basketball identity. Um, and then he goes to college for a year or two, and every decision there is focused around basketball. Right. Um, and then he gets into the NBA or whatever, plays for a few years, he has very little freedom in his decision-making there either. It's all about basketball. And right. so then once you retire, all of a sudden there is no one there directing your decisions. And I can only imagine that to be a really bizarre situation when you've had someone else in your ear your entire life beforehand. Absolutely. All the way down to saying like, you need to be in the lobby at eight thirty. Yep. Like how strict their regimen is for their whole life. And then all of a sudden that being gone. 
there was I was had a conversation with the, uh, one of the guys that works out of the space that I manage. That was he's an older gentleman and he uh, grew up with some DC elite. Um, and so he told me a story about a guy who was from one of these really old money families and just didn't quite get how things work. So he wanted to buy a camper van so that because his wife wanted them to go on a vacation across the country. Um, and so he they went and found one. Um, and then this, uh, this friend of mine took him to the um, bank and this was probably, you know, uh, 25 years ago. Uh, and he comes out and he's frustrated and he's like, he's like, what's the matter? And he's like, well, they need some kind of check, like, a, like from a cashier or something like that. <laughs> uh, and he's like, like, I don't understand why the check I have here won't work. And it was this moment of like, like this guy has never had his own like personal value, not be enough for people to trust him. <laughs> like he's never had the need for a cashier's check because everyone knows this guy's got money. And yet so he has <laughs> right. no idea how it works. Like that's right. just mind boggling to him. Yeah. Uh, and I imagine the same thing is true here. Like these people may not know how to book a flight. Um, yeah. They, they, you know, it's, uh, it's mind boggling in some ways. It is. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk about with this is just, how I hate, and this goes back to a previous point that I didn't plan on tying in, but how much I hate that almost all of our broadcasting community seems to be made up of retired athletes. Um, yeah, it's really unnecessary. And it makes me kind of feel bad for, um, this is another UVA player, and this is why I feel bad for him, but like Tiki Barber came here to UVA and like from very early on, he was angling for a career in media and not necessarily just sports media, but any kind of media. Uh, right. And so he, like, he was the one that really wanted to be, to replace Regis on the Regis and Kelly or whatever. Uh, right. And then to see Michael Strahan, who has like no background in this, get it over him. I think yeah. there are all kinds of reports about how frustrated he was that his training seemed to matter nothing uh, when it came to getting this stuff done. Hmm. He's an early retiree as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's now he's now got a radio show, so he's he's doing all right, I think. Good. Good. So, but I mean, it's just hard. Like you got Strahan's a charismatic fellow. It's uh, it's hard to compete against him. Yeah, he seems to have whatever that Good Morning America thing is. He seems that seems to have it exactly. I don't get it, but he's got it. <laughs> well, good deal. You want to hit us up with your I Think piece? I think that I think that it is well past time for a non-male head coach in a major sport. I have a hard time believing that there is not a coach out there that could do the job as well as any current coach. It is easier to imagine a case wherein a non-status quo coach might bring with them an arsenal for coaching that we have not yet seen in professional men's sports. I think that many would consider it more risky than it really would be. The spectrum of voices on the issue would be so far raging. It would be a sure way to be disliked by most and over, overly critiqued by almost everyone. But maybe that's the cost of going first. Or maybe I'm way off on this, and it shouldn't even be a goal or something to seek out. I'm thinking there could be something to a complete rejection of this glass ceiling. Something that says, no thanks, boys, we're doing just fine over here. <clears throat> Have fun becoming irrelevant. Either way, I'm ready for a coach, and I'm looking at you, Pop. I know you're listening. To retire and name a female replacement. Do you think um, do you think that Steve Kerr is helping with this as well? I don't know. Because I, I kind of look at the way Kerr runs his team, um, mm -hmm. and I think that it's uh, it's been counter to the traditional norms of the male-focused coaching world in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like, he wants to have a good time, and he wants – and so when you mentioned bringing a new skill set to the game – 
Mm-hmm. Like Kerr wasn't there for much of the playoffs, but I think his uh, his difference of style of coaching was there, and it made a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder, I wonder if he or Pop could be the one that kind of paved the road for that next level. Right. But I do. Um, so I had an interesting conversation this week with uh, some folks talking about how to increase the entrepreneurial mindset in the area where we are. Um, and there's some really interesting research that someone shared within the group that, um, that the, when it came to getting women involved in the sciences and uh, involved in uh, coding and things like that, that they found that they could do all of the outreach to the kids that they want but that it didn't matter. It all came back to the attitudes of the parents and the influencers. Um, yeah. And then most specifically, it came back to dads not wanting their daughters to get these skills um, and perhaps because they don't want their kids to move away. But I think there's probably a m- multitude of reasons there. Uh, and so I wonder how much, like how much of this question is really because women don't think of coaching as a direction they want to go in or a lot of women don't. And so how much talent are we missing out on because they've been told that coaching is the domain of men for years and years and years. Sure. Um, and so we've, how have we missed that? Like how many times have we missed that great woman who could have been a, a tremendous NBA coach uh, because Absolutely. she was told that it wasn't an option. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, two things, one, like you look at someone like Pat Summit. And it's like, could Pat Summit have run a successful men's program? Absolutely. Like, absolutely. Um, and then the second part of it for me is like, okay, if it is, um, or if the logic of GMs and ownership works in such a way that they're constantly looking for like the new thing or the new advantage or the new statistical analysis tool to measure success, like, how could you not consider saying like, oh, maybe there's a coaching perspective out there that we don't know about? Like, how could you like, not entertain that? Yeah, but that requires a level of um, humility that I think we found doesn't exist in, in uh, big public sports. That is true. Like even Pop, as much as I love Pop, I don't think of him as a humble person. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah. What do you got? All right. I went to the mall yesterday to buy some new pants for work that I needed. I had to do it, but damn, it was not fun. I could feel my stress level go up immediately. I wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. There were so many people and it was all about shopping. Somehow I was struck going to a sports event is different. There's no doubts the crowds can be as large, if not larger. They have been known to be quite staggering, 100,000 to watch a football game. I'm still uncomfortable there, but on some level, I think that I think that going to a sports event can still be one of the most rewarding experiences in the world. To be part of a shared experience like that is truly special. There's nothing like cheering on a team together to uplift the spirit. For that reason, I wish it was more accessible. I wish tickets were less expensive and that they didn't make them so hard to get a hold of. There is also, this is in some ways a celebration of how much I appreciate a long regular season. It may make things boring for the players, but I think it's vital for the fans. What it means to be a fan is most laid bare when we watch a game in person. It is there that we see all of the flaws of sports, but also all of its glory. We may not love being around a group, a bunch of other people, but there is something about watching sports in person that makes it worth it. Oh yeah. That makes me think of two things from my personal experiences. One living in LA, I would watch a lot of Laker games with some major Laker fans and most of them had not been to a game hmm. and the few that had had been to like one or two. Uh, and the whole time I lived there for two years, I tried to find, tickets to a Lakers game that were affordable and the cheapest I ever found was an $80 ticket on the top row. Mm. Uh, and just how absurd that is. And then contrasting that with growing up a Reds fan just across the river from Cincinnati. And once we got our licenses when we were 16, um, 
we went to those last three summers before college, we went to like 40, 50 games each summer because um, mm. we could get $5 seats. And just how how fun that was and how enjoyable it was to share that space with some friends. Um, so, yeah. That's amazing that um, you know how big of an Arsenal fan I am. Um, right. And yet their ticket prices are way higher. Well, let me say not way, but significantly higher than any other team in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Um, and this bothers me, but at the same time, I know, I trust that, that they're doing that because that's what they have to do to be financially responsible. Right. Um, and that's part of what bothers me about the whole thing. The part of, I think this goes back to, you know, I want to see the players get the money but I just wish there was less money. I wish that, you know, at this point they're making so much money off of these television contracts. Um, right. But I almost, I want to see a team give away free tickets and make money off of concessions at their events. Mm-hmm. I want to see the Washington wizards give away free tickets and just say, we're making enough from other places to make it worthwhile. That'd be awesome. I mean, think about how – so that if there's a team that's going to have that happen, right, it's going to be the Green Bay Packers because they're community-owned. Um, but it's never going to happen, is it? It's not. It's, a, it's un-American of me to even suggest such a thing, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, still, I will say that going to – like going to see David Beckham in person at play at the DC United Stadium was just a, uh, an amazing experience. Uh, seeing UVA beat Duke uh, from the back row at U-Haul was an amazing experience. Um, it's just, just even going to watch a minor league baseball game is, I think, a unique and wonderful experience uh, of our culture. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Will you ready to wrap it up? Yeah, I'm good there. Good deal. Well, thanks, y'all, for listening again. Uh, please like, subscribe, do whatever. Um, why you would. Uh, we're just a couple of white dudes talking crap. So come back next week. We're going to talk more <laughs> crap. Um, so I have no idea what it'll be about at that point. Probably something about golf. Probably a lot of basketball. Uh, and probably some other uh, hating on MMA and uh, boxing stuff. So come back again for that. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott.